Hi there. Uh, this is Lisa Weinert with the Narrative Medicine Podcast, and I'm super thrilled to have Dr. Louis Mel Madronas with us today. Um, Louis is probably, I think, in some ways can be considered the grandfather of, of the narrative medicine movement as we understand it in the U.S. right now. He, uh, to give him just a little bit of a background of his bio, he's the author of the Coyote Trilogy. His work discusses healing practices from Lakota, Cherokee, and Cree traditions and how they intersect with conventional medicine via a social constructionist model. He has been writing about the use of imagery and narrative and healing since the 1980s and is certified in psychiatry, geriatrics, and family medicine. His uh, background is in the Stanford School of Medicine. His research collaborations include work on various psychological conditions, issues of psychology during birthing, nutritional approaches to autism and diabetes, and the use of healing circles to improve overall health outcomes. Louis, I think your, your bio could go on and on and on, but why don't you uh, meet us where you are right now? I, I know you've been traveling quite a bit, going to various narrative medicine conferences the last uh, few weeks. Um, fill us in on, on where you've been and what it sort of looks like internationally from your perspective. Well, we were, um, my wife Barbara and I, who I write with and work with, were just at a narrative conference in Amsterdam. And... That was exciting. We had a panel on interdisciplinary narrative work. And maybe I can talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, sure. What does that mean? About, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, it, it really means um, the question is, so to collaborate with other disciplines, to what degree do you need to share the same stories? Hmm. And, and when you collaborate with other specialties, um, what kind of stories can you generate to tell others what you've accomplished? And um, so my talk was about um, narrative ideas collaborating with neuroscience. So I looked at um, what are the parts of the brain that are involved in telling and understanding stories and what are some of the clinical problems that arise when those parts of the brain are not working well and um, what are some of the other you know when story brain goes on what has to go off and vice versa so for instance um, story brain comes on when we're idle and daydreaming and you know, mindlessly driving home or taking the train home from work. Um, but when we suddenly have to pay attention and do something, you know, maybe you're walking home from the subway and you suddenly get the sense that maybe you're being followed or chased. You know, there's a whole other executive control function that comes on that, you know, alerts you and takes over and stops that daydreaming and assess what's going on and do what has to be done and, you know, that kind of thing. So, so the two kind of um, balance each other. And if you spent all the time, if you spent all your day in story brain, that would be, you'd never get any groceries. But if you never went to story brain, 
you know, you'd have no identity. So, so I talked about, you know, the collaboration of neuroscience and, and story. And then um, Barbara talked about trauma stories that are embedded mm. in the body. And so, so what are the, what are the stories that can be told through the body or etched on the body that may not have words yet, that, that may not have a medium for verbal telling mm-hmm. a written form? And, and how do those stories get told? And how do we pull those stories out of the body and, and metabolize them into a form in which they can be performed or told or, you know, processed and, and, and thereby people heal? You know, which I think is a really important topic. And, um, and then we, we had a, a colleague from England, from the Lakes District, who's with the National Health Service, talk about um, the importance of, of poetry in geriatrics, which is absolutely lovely. Yeah. She gave examples of how, you, how even people who are moderately, you know, suffering from dementia can still write poetry, and you can still communicate with them through poetry. They can still tell their story through poetry. And and that was really moving. And How is poetry defined in that context? Um, really loosely, mm-hmm. as, as um, w- words strung together that that communicates something meaningful. But the the poems she read were actually quite poetic. And seemed like normal poems that that mm-hmm. we might write or read. Of course, she does come from the home of Wordsworth, so perhaps everyone is a poet in the Lake District. But, <laughs> I can um, tell you definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things but it's that I there. one of the things <laughs> that I learned from going everywhere in the region. So wherever you go, there'll be a sign that says, Wordsworth slept here. <laughs> it's sort of like George Washington in Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to pause for a minute and come back to your work and a little bit talk about the trajectory, but what you just said about uh, storytelling and bodies, there's this line from the the foreword to your, your book, Narrative Medicine, that I, I think I underlined so many times, it's sort of through many pages where um, uh, it's Tom Hartman writes, um, those of us who grew up in in modern Western culture, a far less obvious way, our bodies are our stories. Not Mm. just our body decorations, like the way we wear our hair or our piercings or tattoos or makeup, but our bodies ourselves. And that is just, um, I think such an important way to frame the whole canon of your work and early on one of the ways that you define narrative medicine you write um, within any healing art whatever else we do we treat by telling a story 
The term narrative medicine arises from the impossibility of separating treatment from the stories told about the treatment. The audience hearing the stories and the context in which the stories are told. And I was hoping you could talk a that, about that a little bit. I mean, as we are talking right now, you're actually um, in the midst of seeing patients and just your experience being a Western trained doctor from the Cherokee Lakota tradition. And even already in the short conversation, you've started by telling a number of stories and just how you see storytelling as part of your your practice. Well, <clears throat> you know, Diagnosis is storytelling because we come up with a story to explain the experiences that the patient is having. And and so I'll give you an example from today. So we have a man who came into the hospital with weakness in his arms and legs and and some numbness and he lost his reflexes. And he had a flu shot 10 days ago. So we have to come up with a story to explain what's going on. And then we need a story to justify what we're going to do to him. Mm -hmm. and so we came up with a story that he must have Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now, we don't know that. I mean, we don't, we can't be certain, but we know that it's more that the likelihood increases after a flu shot, which he had, and we know that that it has to do with, you know, weakness and and loss of reflexes. And so we decide, well, that's what he must have. And so we tell him that story and we say, um, well, we can help you by giving you intravenous immunoglobulin you know, to to reverse this. And and um of course I always tell people and uh, and of course you'll feel better in a day or two. <laughs> you know? And and he, and it's a day or two and he does. And but but now we're in a quandary because none of the tests for Guillain Barre syndrome are coming back positive. But he's getting better. Mm -hmm. So the resident, so, you know, the physician in training, which we call residents, is looking at me saying, well, so what's he got? <laughs> and I'm saying, well, you know, maybe he has a really mild case of Guillain-Barre. You know, so mild that we can't see it in the, in the studies. And the, or, or maybe he's got a weird virus and we'll never know the answer. But he's getting better. So whatever we're doing, we probably should keep doing it. So that's the story I'm telling the resident. Now, will it change the story we're telling the patient? I don't know. You know, because he likes the story we told him because he's getting better. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so, you know, there, we, we, I think we tend to hide the, the level of uncertainty in medicine by pretending to be definitive, you know. I know mm -hmm. what's going on. We don't always. There's a, there's another great line from um, oh go on. No, I was just going to say, but but we we have to you know in order to inspire confidence we have to create a story, and and at least stick to it for a few days. 
Well, that's about how long you should work on a story if you're writing one at the minimum, I would say, as well. Right. Another line that stuck out to me that seems to relate to what you're saying, also from narrative medicine, is narrative medicine helps us understand that everything we assume to be true about the world is just a story. Yeah. Now, about the word just well, think, in this in this context. Well, that that you know at the at the basis for everything that we think is just patterns of sensory impressions. Mm-hmm. Pixels. Visual pixels, you know, frequencies of sound. And and we have to interpret that. And so lucky for us we're born into stories that tell us how to sort out the pixels and how to make sense of the sounds. And, 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 and because if we didn't have those stories, we'd go nuts. It would be overwhelming, you know, to figure out the foreground from the background and what to pay attention to and what, what to ignore. Mm-hmm. You know, when I li- lived in New York City... It's helping you talk a little bit. Go on. Well, I was just going to say, people who live in New York City, like I did once upon a time, ignore sirens. Because <laughs> there's so many of them. <laughs> there truly are. There truly but are. My dog ignores them as well. Yeah. You couldn't survive if you paid it, if you like alerted to every siren that went by. Whereas if you live where I live in a town of 9,000 people, a siren goes off and you run to the window to see what's going on. <laughs> Different stories about how to how to interpret, you know, sensory data. Um, I'm going to ask you to tell tell a story. That's that's you have many stories that I love, and this is a favorite. And you told it also at the recent um, conference we were at together at Kerpalu, uh, the debut program in narrative medicine there, um, to kind of go back in time a little bit. Uh, You write so beautifully about indigenous cultures, especially um, uh, the Cherokee tribe and Lakota traditions in context to your Western medical training. And the role of storytelling is is obviously so different um, with those different. Talk a little bit in medical school and discovering sort of the story of the doctor that you were introduced to there. Oh, right. My one of my transitional moments. <laughs> I so, love it. So I'm I'm sitting in pharmacology class, and of course I'm really excited to be there because it's you know Stanford and it's medical school, and um, the professor who who discovered the metabolic syndrome, for people who know what that is, looks at us and says, uh, boys because he can't admit there's girls in the class. He says, boys, life is a (laughs) relentless progression toward death, disease, and decay. The physician's job is to slow the rate of decline. And and it just just freaked me out, you know. I mean, of course there's a little truth in it, but, Mm -hmm. but, you know, my grandmother and my great-grandmother believed that you should die healthy so you could party on the other side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All your relatives would be waiting for you. And you didn't want to be too sick because then you wouldn't have a good time. 
it takes you a while to recover. And um, and just that notion of, of death, disease, and decay and the relentless progression toward it, just it was just more than I could handle. And it seems so not, so contradictory to the stories that I grew up in. And as soon as the class was over, I I ran ac- across the, the the field to the Stanford Indian Center and and burst in on Henry Blue Eyes, who was Henrietta Blue Eyes, who was at the mm-hmm. desk. And I said, I need an elder. <laughs> she said, What tribe are you? I said, Cherokee. She said, I got two. So she gave me the names of two elders, uh, one in Ukiah and one in Garberville. And I called them, and, and, and they kept me sane through medical school, you know, by giving me the alternative point of view. You know, the, the traditional stories to complement the modern stories. And I, I think we all need a little bit of two-eyed seeing. You know, too much modernity erodes our humanity. We need some ancient wisdom. Can you expand on that a little bit? What do you What do you mean when you say ancient wisdom? What does that sound would, and look and smell like to you? It It's the wisdom that that uh, comes through story, and mm-hmm. um, it could come. It could be wisdom that comes through biblical stories, as as we experienced in the conference that you and I went to. It could be wisdom that comes through traditional um, Aboriginal stories from North America or Australia or anywhere. Um, So it's the wisdom that comes from stories that have been told for more than 500 years. And some of this knowledge is it, it, we really need it to survive. You know, the, and some of the ideas we need to survive, like that we should cooperate with each other and help each other, you know, that we should take care of each other. You know, um, it's, it's, you know, re- research has shown that, that you know, in, in games, the way to win is for everyone to cooperate. And I suspect that's true in the macrocosm, too, that... That if if we're going if we're going to survive as people on the planet, and the planet is probably somewhat indifferent to whether we make it or not, <laughs> but if we're going to survive as people, we're going to have to cooperate with each other and work together, and and not compete and and try to amass wealth and take it away from other people, because in in all the studies and simulations that are done, that leads to a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Whereas cooperation and collaboration leads to a good outcome. So the the ancient stories teach us how to share and get along and take care of each other. And 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 you know share for the collective as opposed to amass wealth for the individual. Which is what I think we need to do to survive. Thank you for that. You you talk about, about um, the role of community in a pretty radical 
uh, way in your work. And I was hoping you could, um, two examples struck me, and there, there's probably many, many more that you might want to touch upon. But um, you talk about the role of others and the role of community, the role of being around others who we feel are invested in our recovery as being an essential part of the healing process. And there, there is one anecdote I, I've seen you recall prescribing elder care, you know, 10 people a day instead of um, antidepressants as, as one way of, of dealing with the kind of isolation and the depressant, depression that's so rampant in um, uh, people living in sort of elder communities. Mm-hmm. And you've also done really revolutionary work in the field of mental health, particularly uh, with bipolar and schizophrenia using story and community as part of the treatment. And I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, You know, surprisingly, it turns out that we naked monkeys need other people, like (laughs) hairy monkeys. We really can't regulate our moods in isolation. We really need other people to regulate mood and to, you know, to help us get along. And there's a number of huge studies that show that the more friends you have, the less likely you are to have dementia. So friends prevent dementia. And um, friends prevent a host of other diseases, too. So uh, How is a studies, friend defined in this uh, category? Um, people to whom you can go and share um, intimate information. Mm-hmm. People who whom you feel care about you, and and are invested in your well-being. So we need that, and um, in in many tribes in North America, I say that because I don't know all of them, but the ones that I've looked at, there's this idea that if one person is sick it means the whole community is out of balance. Mm-hmm. And and we have an obligation to, you know, help that person who's sick because they took it on for us. Maybe they're more sensitive than we are. You know, they're the canary in the mine shaft. And, and so we should be grateful to them for being sick for us, and we should do everything we can to help them recover. By, by examining our community and correcting the disharmony and imbalances that we find. You know, and, and I think when you look at, at our society, it's full of disharmonies and imbalances that, that we all need to work on correcting. And um, so we, we can... Um, to like to work in community with people who have um, serious mental illness, to to generate a community around them, and to because that's what happens in third world countries where people have an enormously better recovery rate from serious mental illness than they do in the United States. So. Uh, this came out of a study from the World Health Organization 
and we found that people in India had an incredibly greater likelihood of recovering from schizophrenia than people in the United States, because in India they were continually surrounded by family and friends, mm-hmm. never taken away, isolated, locked up, you know, um, marginalized, but but always surrounded and assisted in in remaining embedded in the family. And, um, and of course, in, in the United States, there's, there's a, a movement to, you know, to help people with psychosis without medication in, in social milieus that, that protect them and embed them in community and allow them to recover. And the studies that have been done show enormously better results. But it's you know it's hard to to implement because you know it it's it costs human time instead of instead of costing drug dollars mm-hmm. and, and we tend to like drug dollars over human time in this country but you use the you use the word recovery a lot. I've noticed in how you're talking about different communities that you're treating people recovering from hospital or college or or whatever. And um, what does that what does that mean to you? And why are you uh, framing uh, I, I, working with people that way? I think I'm influenced. There's, a, there's an international recovery movement, mm-hmm. and um, in in the UK, for instance, there's something called Recovery College. And in mm-hmm. Australia, there's Recovery University, and they have they offer courses like how to stay out of hospital, or how to get out of hospital once you're in, or how to talk to psychiatrists, <laughs> or what not to tell psychiatrists, <laughs> or, or how to how to deal with your voices. And and the recovery movement is based in the idea that people can get better. That, right. that people can move to higher states of wellness and, and integration. And, um, you know, it, it to some degree it's being endorsed by the U.S. government, by National Institutes of Health and by um, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Administration. Um, we're, not, we're not as invested in it as they are in Australia and England. And, and Europe, but but it's here, and and so I'm I really believe people can get better, and if you don't believe that, then you're part of the problem I think, and you know I I I worked with a with someone who was considered one of the most severely ill people in in my town, and she recovered. <clears throat> And so, so um, she was interviewed by a journalist, and and the journalist asked her, "So, what do you think was was a really? What are some of the really important elements of of your recovering? You know, because who can believe that somebody with severe mental illness could recover?" And and she said that, you know, one of the key elements was that. You know, when she came to see me, 
<clears throat> I believed that she could recover. Right. And, and I, I didn't waver in that belief. And when she said, how? I said, I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, I know, I know it's possible. We'll just have to figure it out. And she just kept coming. And one day she figured it out. I didn't figure it out. But, but in my role was to just keep the faith and tell stories and, and, and hold the space that, that she could be happier and more functional. And over a couple of years, it happened. You know, and, and so that's really the recovery idea. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. really, it doesn't really fit into our contemporary mental health system. You know, it's just more piecemeal, and people have different providers at every stage of their journey through the system, and there's not a lot of coherence and consistency. But, I mean, we could change that. Well, there's tremendous uh, optimism to your to your work, which is so infectious and uh, so inspiring. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I wanted just to touch on two two things. Um, one is uh, to bridge from what you were just talking about about how compartmentalized our healthcare is. Your trainings are very holistic, and you have a lot of tools in your in your kit between um, all the different trainings, plus also um, uh, massage and touch and Reiki and hypnotism and body work. And um, just to talk a little bit about uh, treating holistically and sort of borrowing from so many different healing modalities. Well, I I think um, we're all looking for the, the combination of stories that will appeal to the person we're working with mm-hmm. and will connect with them. And I think the more repertoire that we have of techniques and, and theories, and the more we can, more likely we are to find one that'll fit the person that, that we're sitting with. And um, I, I suppose I, I'm just naturally curious about the world and how people see it. <laughs> And I like to learn new things and try new things. And, you know, there's there's things I don't know. And I try to know people who know those things so that if people are drawn to those things, I know who to send them to. But I think, you know, we need that flexibility of, of being able to find the story that will resonate with the person that we're seeing, you know, because... Arthur Kleinman was was the person who wrote about how, you know, if if the healing narrative of the practitioner doesn't fit that of the patient, nothing will happen. Mm. And so we we just have to, you know, the more we know, the more, and the more flexible we are, the more people we can help, I think. And just in the last couple of minutes, I was hoping you could share a little bit about some of your upcoming trainings that you have uh, that you'll be offering. One of the most ex- a 15-month series of trainings in North American healing arts that we're doing with Kata in New York City, which is the 
Center for the Advancement of Therapeutic Arts. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to be working with stories and, and teaching um, North American styles of bodywork, particularly Cherokee bodywork, which is what I know. And um, focusing on how to weave the two together, which is what the the indigenous healers did in this country. <laughs> you know, because they didn't know that mind and body are supposed to be separate. <laughs> you know, for them, it, it was all one. Right. So while they touched and massaged you, they got your story and helped you to work on changing the story while they facilitated you changing your body. And and so that's coming up. We have an open house at, at Kata, which is on West 26th Street, um, August 13th, Saturday afternoon. Great. And, um, yeah, so that um, that's something that's really exciting me, I think. Uh, well, I love New York. I can't afford to live there, but I love visiting. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> You'll just have to prep for the sirens. Um, right. And one very last question. You, you, I believe, as far as I can tell, are, are one of the first sort of American scholars to use narrative medicine publicly. It was the title of one of your, your first titles. Um, and you've been using this word in your scholar, phrase in your scholarship since the 80s. And the the field is really um, growing exponentially with co- programs at Columbia, Brown, Duke, sort of all over the place, and writers and residents at different medical schools. And I just wanted to hear your perspective on how it's growing and sort of your, your thoughts about it as an emerging field. Well, I, I think it's good that we're rediscovering what people knew centuries ago, mm-hmm. that that stories are important and stories matter and that, you know, medicine is a story, a collection of stories and that people's stories are important. So, you know, I think about um, traditional healers knew this and know this all over the world. Um, Hippocrates um, knew this. Uh, The Persian, the famous Persian physician, Ibn Sina, wrote about this in the 10th century A.D. So it's good that we're reconnecting with ancient wisdom at big-name big universities. And, and hopefully it will humanize medicine. I, I, I really hope that it will make a difference in how we do things. Because we've we sort of gone to the extreme of, of checkbox mm-hmm. philosophy. And we've... we've, we've stripped out a lot of humanism that we really need to get back. And I hope I hope that this whole movement will will do that. Well, there's there's a lot of great energy here. Um, well, I could speak to you for, for hours and days probably, um, but I'm going to let you go. And thank you so much for your time. Um, your, your website, there, everyone can find out more about your work. Uh, just Google Louis Mel Madrona, M-E-H-L hyphen M-A-D-R-O-N-A. And I look forward to um, following and promoting your work in the future. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Louis. Bye. Bye.